on, let's smooth it out like soul sensation. We in the house like Japanese in Japan or Koreans in Korea. Had the Philly and Fremalia with the Kooji Chagalia true. Singing and swinging and writing is fighting. But what they write in God is clashing like titans. Thank you, Coley Tangela, for that commentary. We're about to hear the latest installment from the world of the play, our series where we look at the issues going on behind the plays in production at Everyman Theater. This time we talk about the musical Los Otros and ask how we remain culturally curious and open to other cultures, from being children to being grown-ups, and how do we transcend the problem of othering and reach toward a world of inclusiveness and belonging, of love and of family. This time, our dear friend Dr. Kimberly Moffat will be hosting... She's an associate professor in the Department of American Studies as well as in the Department of Language, Literacy, and Cultures Ph.D. program and an affiliate associate professor in the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's published three co-edited volumes, including Blackberries and Redbones, Critical Articulations of Black Care and Body Politics in Africana Communities, The Obama Effect, Multidisciplinary Renderings of the 2008 Campaign, and the 1980s, A Transitional Decade. We're looking forward to her newest book coming out on the TV series Scandal. Um, I want to for right now, World of the Play. And I want to introduce to you Dr. Kimberly Moffitt, Associate Professor of American Studies at UMBC, and sometimes and always a wonderful guest moderator for the Mark Steiner Show on 88.9. You all listen? So with no further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce Dr. Kimberly Moffitt. Very excited to be here and even more excited to hear what our panelists have to offer and certainly looking forward to what you would like to share, especially if you have just seen the production and your thoughts because they're much, I'm sure, fresher than um, ours because we saw it a couple of weeks ago, but really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. I want to introduce my three guests today. Um, first, I have Scott Patterson, who is a pianist and composer of incomparable talent. The Pittsburgh Tribune Review described his playing as, quote, a masterly blend of virtuosity, singing style, and beautiful voicing, end quote. Scott is also the co-founder and artistic director of Afro House, a music-driven performance art, out, excuse me, art house based here in Baltimore, if we can welcome him. And then next to Scott, we have Edgar Reyes, who is a multimedia artist based in Baltimore and in the Washington, D.C. area. His work is a reflection of his personal experience as an undocumented youth here in the United States. He earned his MFA from MICA and um, has taught at a number of nonprofit and private institutions. If we can welcome Edgar. And finally joining us, because of course we have to have a nice balance between men and women, uh, Katie Miller joins us as a 2016 OSI Baltimore Community Fellow. Um, her research or, or the fellowship that she currently holds aims to address issues of food access and food justice within the Latinx community in collaboration with CASA, which is an immigrant advocacy organization here in the city. Katie is also supporting the build out of sanctuary and ally networks in Baltimore. If we can welcome Katie, please. So we had the panel before the panel and enjoyed each other's company upstairs for about um, close to an hour. And so we've had such a great conversation already. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how you all respond to much of what was said then. But I'll start first by asking the panel to just share what works in Los Otros? What works? Um, one, you know, I just think uh, the mu first the music was just beautiful. Uh, I think we can all agree with that. Um, and I, I feel like the story, I, the one thing I thought was beautiful about the story was that it was timeless. You know, I felt like I was watching it and, and halfway I'm like, wait a minute, this is 1950. Oh, oh, I, I thought this was now. And, I, and it wasn't a, in a bad way. You know, I felt like the issues and, and the story, that it, it could have very well been now, and I, I thought that was, I thought that was really smart and, and witty. Um, I think I think for me, what what works is the fact that um, it is appropriate to what we're seeing right now. Um, but I think there's a little bit of things that I, I think we'll we'll talk about where uh, I kind of miss an opportunity in terms of giving more historical context as to um, 
why we're seeing a, a white-centered um, story. Um, I think something that the play encouraged me as a white woman to do was reflect on how my own identity is is manifest and uh, the power dynamics of that identity that might exist as I interact with members of our Latino immigrant community here in Baltimore. So Brian does a fabulous job of uh, helping frame this conversation for us and refers to this as the word of the play, othering and belonging. And I'm curious if you can reflect on for me um, instances in which you saw the characters othering and belonging or othering and belong or othering or belonging. Did that make sense? Okay. I think something that, that we talked about in our pre-conversation that was a moment that um, really struck all of us, and I would love for the other panelists to speak to this, is when uh, Lillian described Carlos, is that his name? Yes. When Lillian describes Carlos as exotic at the close of the play, um, because I think that choice in vocabulary really creates a lot of distance between his identity and hers. And yet it's in this moment where they seem to be expressing friendship. So I think that's a strong contrast. Um, and I personally find that word problematic. And, and it's not a word that, that I would choose to describe someone with a different cultural identity than my own. Yeah, the, the word choices was, was very, got me thinking a lot about uh, identity and the fact that when she was working with or helping out the family in the cave, she describes her her neighbor as Mexican, but nice. Um, and I was like, yeah, well, can't she just be a nice woman? <laughs> or can't she just be Mexican? Why do we have to, to, to tie those in to kind of validate her, her existence, right? Um, so I think, I, think, I think we do it a lot sometimes, and you see it a lot in the art world, uh, especially me being a practicing artist, the fact that I can't just be a contemporary artist. I have to always be a, or not always, but sometimes I, I, I label myself or others label me as a, as a Mexican artist. Um, so I think it's, it plays on that a lot, um, especially also with, with the other character, and I'm spacing out on his name. What was his name again? Lillian? With Carlos. Carlos. Um, he, do, he does that to himself as well. So I think um, it, really, it really got me thinking even before the play and after the play, as to how I can push myself from avoiding to, to from othering myself and having and, and pushing that on other people. Um, but I think language language plays a big role in that and how we describe people. Yeah, I think that the belonging and the sense of othering is is very is a very complex thing, you know. Uh, the, the name of my company, my wife and I, our company is called Afro House, um, which is, some would say is problematic, um, especially as when you say that your company is called Afro House and you are African-American. People assume the type, and we, you say we do music. People think you do what kind of music? Jazz, Jazz? what else? Who? Blues? Who? Classic? Now see, you're just being <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yes, we, we, we actually, uh, we do a lot of what we do, we do everything, but we, a lot of what we do is contemporary classical music. Uh, I'm a composer, and we, we, but the thing is, is that it's not simple. Um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I write is Afro. Well, I, I, I did. I was about to do it to myself. It's futuristic stuff. I like space. I write about space, and people will say that's Afrofuturism. Say ah, it's just futurism, but I am African American. It's it's hard, um, and I think in this piece, um, it became it becomes really easy. I think it's easier to just say people belong in certain boxes. And I think that with this piece, I saw that a lot. Um, for instance, the scene where um, she goes to visit her um, her ex, uh, uh, child care. Uh, the child care yeah. provider. 
um, and she chooses not to bring her daughters. It would have been great if she brought her daughters. They would have had a great time. Well, with the way that the, the two daughters clearly expressed love for her, it seemed like a natural thing to do to make it a, a family event. But clearly, she didn't see it that way. Why? Why do you think? It's messy. Messy you know, how? I think it was it's messy. She would have, once she would have had to see her daughters um, give affection, which I think was something that she had a problem with. Um, it was very hard for her to see her daughters give affection to, uh, uh, what, was, what, was, sorry, what was her name? To her, to, to her um, house worker, um, caregiver. But um, uh, I guess I feel like that it, it, it was messy in the way that she would have to confront her own feelings about being there herself. And how did she feel towards Mexican people? Mm. Um, she, she would have had, she, it was easy for her to go there, spend some time, and then just get out. And, and not really make a big, big thing of it. And I think in addition um, to perhaps the messiness, I think there was a sense of unknown for her in going right. into that space. Um, so I think a lot of parents, um, because of their protective nature, uh, want to protect their children from things that might be scary or unknown. And I think- Well, certainly unknown to the mom. Mm -hmm. So then what will that mean for my children? So I will bear that burden, right? To be temporarily uncomfortable without having to subject my children to it. And sure. I think you're right. And then to reverse that a little, something that made me think about was how often, for example, in Baltimore, members of our Latino immigrant community have to face the unknown, whether it's navigating bureaucracy or um, city systems or even public transportation. And, and yet, um, as a woman of privilege, I, I so rarely have to encounter that. And the unknown um, elicits a sense of fear. And I think it can be an opportunity in those experiences to sometimes uh, create a sense of solidarity with your neighbors and community members who you would otherwise other. Um, and I just think it was really an, an interesting decision as the other panelists did as well. Scott, did you want to finish something with that? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's easy to make up stories when you other people. It's easy to say, oh, those people over there, they, they do this or they're like this. And you have no one to combat that. You know, uh, I lived in New York for 10 years and I lived in a tenement building. Uh, it was run down. It, it had mice, rats, and uh, all, all kind of issues. But uh, my neighbors were, are, were, were Mexican um, and I, and, and different people spoke different languages. We never spoke to each other. We all thought that the problems of the building were just in our apartment. <laughs> and the landlord was just like, hey, that's great for me. <laughs> and until someone who was able to get us all together and speak the different languages, we sat there and we started to talk to each other with the translator. It's like, wait a minute, you have a hole in your roof too? You have mice? I thought it was just us. I thought because we were dirty. Like, no, you, it's, they're coming from your place. You know, and, and we realized that we had a common enemy, our landlord. You know, but it was, it, it, which made things worse. We had to go to court and it got really hard and blah, blah, blah. But it was real easy to live and say, those people over there, they're over there. And those people over there, they're those people. When we other, we put people in boxes, but the thing we don't realize is we're hurting ourselves. Edgar, do you want yeah, to say and, I, and I think it kind of falls into, you know, the whole historical context of, of othering. Othering, for me, when, when, when I thought of the titles, like kind of dehumanizing, right? Kind of what we're seeing in present day, we're dehumanizing people. Like we're putting people basically in detention centers. To me, I mean, they're internment camps. I mean, we're we're separating families, we're imprisoning young people, and you know, even here in terms of the history context of Baltimore, there was there's always been othering. Um, Baltimore was a slave port city. Um, how were people being sold as slaves? Because they were seen as other. They were seen as uh, unhuman. 
Um, so I think that the, the play kind of talks about that subtly. Um, and I think it's a good conversation starter in terms of, you know, what are we seeing today as dehumanizing others? So Scott actually raises a point in the example that he uses about his experience living in this tenement building of what happens when you actually come together and understand that there is a shared lived experience. Are there examples of that very point in Los Otros for you? I think the play, at least for me, you know, I. I I think I have the most personal connection, at least, uh, as a formerly undocumented person. Um, the idea of like telling somebody not to speak their language is, is very uh, disheartening and de devaluing somebody's culture, right? And this idea that when we say America, we say white America, right? It, it, America has, has been brown since ex existence. Mm -hmm. And this idea that America is just this, this country, no, it's like it's North, South, Central, and, and part of the Caribbean as well. If, and I think that, that, that was like, yeah, like I've experienced that. I've, I've had people like look at me weird because I, they might think I'm talking crap about them because I speak Spanish. No, it's I'm just comfortable speaking Spanish sometimes. And sometimes I don't realize that I'm speaking Spanish, right? Even my girlfriend wakes me up, it's like, hey, you're like dreaming in Spanish, like <laughs> wake up. Um, but, you know, the, this idea also that that we're just a hybrid people, right? Why, why do we have to continue to put ourselves in, in boxes and, and labels? Um, and, and it just got me thinking about that, right? That the history of language and, and how language has been used to colonize people and, and, and kind of take away their, their, their culture in essence or in, and give them another culture. Katie, did you have something? What about then, I want to pull on a point that you actually raised just a minute ago about privilege. Talk to me about ways in which you believe privilege seemed to reify itself in this piece or even in your own personal experience. Um, sure, I think in, in the piece in particular, uh, that moment where Lillian describes Carlos as exotic is perhaps uh, a culmination of, of her examples of how she's privileged. And that's because she has the power to other um, and to offer that label. But I think you see her privilege coming out in other ways too. Um, a scene that I honestly found a little bit disturbing was when she went home with the young Latino boy. Um, and I think that definitely exemplifies her privilege and power um, over someone else. She was older, white, um, and I think that's really problematic, and I think the entire play was a somewhat convicting experience for me, not because I've necessarily had the same interactions as Lillian um, with members of our Latino community here in Baltimore, but just thinking about maybe the ways my privileges subtly manifest or um, the language I'm using to describe other people. So I want to push back just a bit on that um, example that you use. So if the young guy had been white, would there still have been an issue of you seeing that as privilege or what? How might it have been read differently? I'm just curious. That's a really good question. I don't think I would have seen it as much as an example of privilege, to be honest, because I think I had seen examples throughout the play in which Lily and others a particular demographic, and, and that young boy was part of that demographic. So I don't know if the boy was white. I don't think I would have had as many problems with that particular scene. Well, you know, going to that scene, I think for me what made the scene problematic in a privileged sort of a way was the way that she viewed not only the boys she had sex with, but all of the boys in that group. It was they were these things that you know, she could relinquish herself on. And, and even when, when uh, you know, when, when, when she was done and the, and the car was, uh, the wheels were stolen, you know, she, her, her reaction was, I, this is what I should have expected because this is what these people do. You know, um, it, it was an it was, it was uh, objectification and it was also a, a very strong sense of othering. Which, which takes privilege 
Um, well, it doesn't take privilege, but it's part of her privilege. Um, and then to answer your question, um, the act of having issues with childcare and going on, uh, to another country and finding someone to smuggle back to your country to be your child caregiver is a level of privilege that I will never fathom. I, I, I will never understand like what that is. We have two sons, and childcare and you know babysitting. That's, I mean, it's, it's huge. But my wife and I are not going to another country to smuggle anyone back. You know, I, I think that's. Incredible. I, you know, and I, I've been speaking to my wife about it, and and I guess her her take on it is, well, if if everyone you know does that, then maybe it wouldn't be so crazy to you. If 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 your neighbors do that, and your your brothers, and your sisters, your parents did that, uh, you grew up with that. You know, maybe it wouldn't seem so crazy. But I, coming from my history, my family history, and 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 my culture. And our part of this country is amazing, you know, to even think that that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah, that kind of falls back into a conversation we were having be before this. Um, this this play could have could have really dove into the the whole history of of that time period, right? The fact that during the First World War, we we were um, dehumanizing um, people who were of Mexican descent who were citizens, and we were uh, deporting them in essence, even though they were U.S. citizens, um, and also the name of the of, of the town they were in, it was it was Santa Rosa, I think, and the fact that it's Spanish, like, and people don't realize, oh wait, Los Angeles, San Antonio, San Francisco, oh yeah, maybe there was actually Spanish and Native people intermixed, and what we think as Mexican, right? were there before we were there, huh? So this idea that it could have really, really, really dove into that idea that, you know, um, others aren't new. We just created the fact that they are others and we're just trying to take up their space and make it our own or, 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 or hide the fact that they were already here. Um, so I think, I think that, at least for me, my art practice, is, I, I love history and why, why you know, these, these, these places still have these names and why many of our states are indigenous names still, still to this, to this day, right? Um, the fact that there was people already here. And I, I find that a lot, like even within Baltimore, this, this othering of the Latino community as new. We're not new, we've, we've always been here. <laughs> You're listening to the latest installment of our series, World of the Play, our collaboration with Everyman Theater which is being hosted today by Dr. Kimberly Moffat sitting in for me. We have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear the rest of that conversation. Before we go to break, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeCU, Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeCU, Baltimore's Credit Union has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeCU invests in you. More information at www. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And this morning, we're listening to the latest installment of The World of the Play, our series where we delve into the issues behind the plays currently in production at Everyman Theater. And today, we're looking at their latest, the musical Los Ojos, we examine how we remain culturally curious and relate to cultures outside of our own. Today, Dr. Moffat will be sitting in for me as guest host. Our guests are Katie Miller, Edgar Reyes, and Scott Patterson. Katie Miller is a 2016 OSI Baltimore Community Fellow. Her fellowship aims to address issues of food access and food justice within the Latino community in collaboration with CASA. She currently coordinates two food justice-focused after-school programs that partner with student groups and corner stores. And Edgar Reyes is a multimedia artist based here in Baltimore and D.C., his work is a reflection of his own experience, his personal experience as an undocumented youth in the United States. And Scott Patterson is a pianist and composer who co-founded as artistic director of Afro House, a music-driven performance art house based here in Baltimore. Uh, Edgar, speak specifically. Um, 
in your own experience as someone who was an undocumented youth, do you now see yourself in a position of privilege as you watched a program like this, a production like this? Yeah. I mean, you look at the audience. That's a sense of privilege, the fact that I can walk in here and watch this play, and for free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there was no other Latino in the, in the audience, right? And the only one that was there, besides me, was an actor playing the stereotype of what a Latino is. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's messed up. Like, and me, I was in a sense of privilege because I was able to experience that and I had the education to actually analyze the situation and really think about that, right? Um, and I think I'm always in a sense of privilege because of that and also because now I'm a US citizen and, I'm, and I have the freedom to go and come back into this country. Um, so I always have to check my own privilege and how, I think, I think we all have to. And Absolutely. then how, how, can we, how can we use our privilege to, if you want, to help other people? And I think something I noticed, Edgar, just speaking to that um, sort of stereotypical role that, that Carlos some, sometimes seems to fit into, we also spoke as a panel beforehand about the fact that this play is indeed written from a white woman's perspective. And I think a symptom of privilege can be this sort of romanticization of otherness too. So something that really hit home for me as someone who's particularly interested in food systems and food justice was the romanticization of Carlos's time as a fruit picker in California. I mean, many of us have probably read The Grapes of Wrath. Um, fruit picking in California has never been like summer camp. And yet that's very much what we see portrayed. And I think that really is a symptom of sort of not only do we other people, but we can also dismiss um, the validity of suffering within their experience of othering by doing just the opposite and sort of creating this romantic portrait of what it looks like to be an other in America. It did seem like a nice moment of coming of age for Carlos, right, during, the, during that period of time when he was working, yes, as a young child. Yeah, and it really, I think the play, going back to your question, like what did it kind of do well? At, right, I think for me, I was like, I was like, Dan, like I haven't seen that many uh, spaces where like they're actually talking about sexuality, right, and this kind of unacceptance of of of, of people who who are queer or who might be LG, part of the LGBTQ community, just represented in a space like this, right? Because it's kind of a, you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking now, present day in my family, like to come out as as a gay person is. It's difficult, right? Especially growing up very Catholic. Um, so I can only imagine in that time period, like all, all the things uh, the character could have uh, dealt with, right? Um, but it was, yeah, it was really much of, of, of coming of age. He was realizing, wait, I am a gay man. Yeah. So what I really enjoy about, even though I have my own um, specific criticisms of the production as well um, and the stories or narratives that seem to be dominant and told. What I do think happens here is we are reminded of just how complex the human experience is. And so some of the points that you all have raised, I mean, such as sexual orientation or even, you know, the way that Lillian seems to objectify uh, a particular population. And even in some respects, I mean, I thought... I don't see it so much as objectifying as this just seems to be a horny middle-aged woman, right, in some respects. And, but that's a part of her human experience, I guess is the point that I want to make, is that even if it is about her objectifying or is it about you know, how she's feeling in that moment as this middle-aged woman, that it is very much a part of our lived experience. And that's what I thought was most telling about this production, was the opportunity to hear these two very disparate narratives from one another that somehow find themselves coinciding or intertwined right at the very end. Any response to that? Um, yeah. I, you know, I walked away from uh, this story uh, thinking, really trying to figure out, okay, what was, what did they learn? Did they grow? Did they change? And I, but then I started asking myself, do they need to? Um, Really ask the hard questions. What am I? Am I creating the story that I would want to see? 
I would want to see this kumbaya and, and oh, yes, I know that I'm privileged and I no longer want to be stepped on, you, you know, uh, kind of thing. But then, then I would be the writer. So me coming to and understand that they, this play, this story is about two people. And she, I do not feel the character ever leaves her privilege or ever understands um, her relationship um, and or how she how she treats other people, and I don't feel th that the other character did either. That's my opinion. But the question that I pose to myself is: Do they need to? This story is about how these two people, in their flaws and in their in their ways, find each other, and and that's what it is. Um, and I and. That's all I can take from it. Yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was a lot to it. Um, but I'm curious for you to just share the fact that what we saw on stage was a simple uh, retelling of the human experience. Is there something that you took away from it? Yeah, I think that um, we have to realize as... as you know, it's going back to I guess to where I started was like it's very time appropriate, right? Um, and that we what we're seeing isn't new, right? This idea of like othering people and, and excluding them. Oh, you're not, you're not, in essence, white. You're not the right type of immigrant. Get out of here. Um, so I, I I think it really brought in, into that, that 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 idea at least at least for me the human experience of just being ostracized for not, for not being the right kind of immigrant um, and then just this this need or desire to to assimilate to be not seen as other um, sort of at least at least for me got me thinking about that um, and yeah I mean it's just human experiences I think and at the end of the day yeah it is, it is a Latino's man story but it's just a human experience of just coming to age um, why does that? Why do we have to label it as a as a as an immigrant Mexican story? Why can't it just be a human experience? I think it's really interesting that we both, in the same panel and and in reviews as well, we've managed to describe the play as both timely and timeless. Uh, and I think that's something that I personally related to because one of my roles with CASA recently has been figuring out how to organize the outpouring of support we've re received from a lot of allies within the city. And it's a lot of folks who have uh, come to CASA, especially after Trump's executive order regarding immigration, wanting to support and protect their Latino immigrant neighbors. And I think I related to the moment in the play where Lillian is offering food to the family in the cave. Because interestingly, I've actually gotten a lot of offers from folks who would like to provide food. And I think it's sort of this sense of when we see a need, how, how do I, for example, as a white woman of privilege, figure out how to best meet that need and use my privilege to create access um, to appropriate resources because we we really don't know if that family in the cave most needed food We really don't know anything about them But I think what we see is similar to what we're seeing now groups of people who are moved to action But are grappling with their identity and trying to figure out exactly what appropriate action is So speaking of immigration How does a production like this impact? exactly the space that we're currently in, that timeless and timely space that we're talking about. How does a production like this impact what we are experiencing right now as a nation? Well, I, I think that it starts the conversation. You know, it's, it sparks the dialogue. It, it's, I think this piece, I mean, my, my wife and I, we've been talking about this piece ever since we saw it. And, and I think that's a great thing. You know, it, there needs to be dialogue about what's going on in our country. There needs to be talk about immigration and about the othering, uh, about uh, hate and about, you, you know, all of these things. Uh, 
we have to have these conversations. It's very easy to do, do all the things we do to other and, and say that's their problem. And, and, and I think that this piece, there needs to be more pieces like this that raise questions, that we walk. It, it's good that I didn't go to this piece and say, yes, I agree with everything that I saw. Job well done. <laughs> go home, have a drink, and sleep. You know, it was like, no, I disagree. I disagree with that. I don't, I don't like that. Um, and my wife said, well, I didn't like that. Or I, I disagree with that. Or, I, I agree with that. And we have a conversation. Then we talk to our friends about it. And, and that's what our country needs to be doing right now. Because we all live in the same tenement building. <laughs> we all have the same issue. And it will stay that issue until we start talking to each other. That's what I believe. Well said. And I think it's um, implicitly what you have also conveyed is the, the role that the arts play in having these conversations that sometimes are very difficult for us as a nation to have, that we can start it by just simply watching and partaking in it and then allowing that to be the start of where conversation can begin. Yeah, a beauty of the arts. I was an artist in my other life, not this one, but I claim it. Yeah, arts, arts are significant in playing a role in, in, in promoting uh, visions and, and, and also kind of the way certain people view the world and want it to be. Sometimes it can be very beautiful. Sometimes it could be to uh, really promote a, a very systemic and oppressive system, right? And we see it all in just history. I mean, and then that... that I think that's that's why I think funding is being removed from public radio, and I think that's why funding is being removed from you know grants that I've received from the National Endowment. It's because maybe the people that are in power maybe are a little bit afraid of the fact that we are going to be producing a counter narrative to what's being fed to us, and I think this this play is is is, is adding to that kind of, or at least starting a conversation about having a counter narrative, right? And that's what we need to see more of. And I'm excited um, for even the Everyman Theater to uh, start bringing that in um, and bringing all, all, all sorts of conversations, right? I work at a, at a private school right outside DC and something that really bothered me was the fact of returning to normalcy after the election. I was like, normal? I was like, I've never been in a normal scenario. <laughs> I'm the only person of color that works here? That's not normal to me. <laughs> Yet, like most of our students are, like, you know, that we bring in here, we want to bring diversity, but I'm like, all right, let's let's go back to normal, whatever normal is. Um, so I think I need we need to at least going back to the play, it, it it brings into question this idea of normalcy, like what does normalcy look like for for people? Um, when are they actually in safe spaces? When do they feel themselves? And how do they make other people uncomfortable so they feel comfortable? And I really liked your use of the word counter-narrative, Edgar, because I think something that I was asking myself as I watched the play, even as I critique the exoticization and the commodification of the other, I think about what a counter-narrative to that here in Baltimore looks like. And just to give a brief example from Casa's work, something that we've been doing is building out a sanctuary network of churches in the city. And because Casa as an organization is really committed to the empowerment of the immigrant communities that we work with, we've been very intentional about partnering immigrant churches and non-immigrant churches, so building those one-to-one -one relationships. And something that I can share from one of those meetings that happened recently between a non-immigrant and immigrant congregation um, was during a moment when we were reflecting on various, various scenario, scenarios that immigrants have faced in coming to the United States. And one of the scenarios dealt with gang violence in El Salvador and, and why, might so, why someone might be trying to escape that violence by immigrating to the United States. And one of the women in the room raised her hand from the immigrant congregation and said to the rest of the group, I'd just like to share that this is my story, that my brother is asking me to bring him to the States because his son was, a, um, was killed by gang violence in El Salvador. So I think in terms of building that counter narrative, um, creating spaces for those relationships to happen and form in Baltimore um, are really important. And I've, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to, to work with CASA on that initiative.
Yeah, and this, this whole idea of, of sanctuary cities, right? Um, I, I do a lot of activist work along, along with my, my art practice and education. I just, I'm just intertwining it a lot. Um, but I think when, as we're pushing for sanctuary cities, whatever that might mean, right? I think we need to think about the fact that we're, at least for me, I'm not asking just for immigrants, just for people that look like me. I mean, we are, people of color are being labeled and pulled over just for, for being, you know, for driving while black, right? So we want sanctuary in, in essence for be like stop labeling us, right? Stop othering us. We are just this human being driving this car, right? Just because we happen to be driving in a neighborhood where maybe we don't look like everybody else here. Maybe we're just lost. We're like trying to find our friend who actually lives here. I don't know, you know? Um, so yeah, sanctuary cities doesn't mean it's just for immigrants. Sanctuary cities, it means for all people who are oppressed, especially people of color, refugees, immigrants, and some of them happen to be white too. So I'm gonna make this um, contemporary statement and have you tie it back into the work, um, which centers around this, what seems to be this culminating moment at the end of the play that almost feels like that kumbaya moment, Scott, that you mentioned. So earlier this week, many of us are familiar with the Pepsi commercial controversy um, that was very much in the vein of this whole sense of othering, right? Um, and belonging at the same time, because you see a commercial that easily um, rears up for many of us the world of social movements and protest, and then all it takes is this white body to offer this commodity known as a Pepsi can to a police officer and everything is good, right? And so that's almost like that kumbaya moment. So I want you to tie that, this whole notion of this kumbaya moment, and share with me what you felt about how the play ends. Well, first let me say that I think Pepsi and Coca-Cola should get out of the humanist business. Uh, you know, they're soda. One of the most dangerous things to a human being. <laughs> you know. Um, but, um, oh, if life could just be a kumbaya moment. If, it, if that was true, we wouldn't be having this conversation because we would have had the kumbaya moment a long time ago. Um, the, the play, the play they, they, they come together, I, I guess their common, uh, not enemy, but their common thing was, was the, the husband, the, the late husband. Um, I didn't really understand, uh, outside of their need to live together on a, in a logistical way, um, they're coming together, but uh, I, I think that what I walked away from their kumbaya moment was, man, they're going to be terrible roommates. <laughs> they were already, <laughs> you know, and I think that's just life. I think life is, is, is that where um, without any real dialogue, without any real work, um, without the destruction of other rings, you know, you, you, you can't live together. Um, you can't have a real kumbaya moment. Because one, even when you do the work, the, the kumbaya is, is, is ongoing. It's an ongoing process. We will never have a kumbaya moment where there's world peace and we're done. We will always have to fight for world peace and, and struggle because and, people get on your nerves. The people you love get on your nerves. Anything with humans involved. Anything, right. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> means that you will always have to have those reoccurring kumbaya moments. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe if I could reframe my, my initial reaction to the use of that word exotic, too, because that actually happens in the midst of this kumbaya moment. Right. And I think what that means for me is that even as we create connection and build relationships with those that perhaps we had previously othered, we still have moments where we struggle with language or make mistakes along the way in terms of our interactions. And um, so maybe that was just a sign that we haven't really reached a kumbaya moment 
um, but that we need to continue to to grapple with the way our identity plays into relationships as as we try to build them. I think we're in a very interesting time in U.S. history, and despite um, the criminalist the the fact that we're criminal uh, sorry tongue tied the fact that we're using. Uh, something as popular, or using the fact that people are protesting as a popular means to sell things is very upsetting, but it's nothing new, right? It's not new, this idea, right? I'm, I'm trained as a graphic designer, and this idea of, of really looking at your audience as this like really racially or kind of pigeonholed group of people, and you're kind of feeding them information so they consume products is, is not new. It's, it's been around for, for forever, you know, since humans have been buying things. Um, but I think it's, it's also sad the fact that um, you saw it even with the Super Bowl commercials, how being um, uh, inclusive and being um, multicultural was in. So I wasn't surprised, right? It's not surprising for me, just like this current election and the results, it's not surprising. I mean, it's been happening for me since I was born, um, this idea of othering. Um, so I think it just was reassuring the fact that young people are organizing and, and young people are responding like this, right, really quickly. Because um, the internet is an amazing place for people to be creative with no resources, with no money, right? Within hours, people were creating memes and creating jokes online about that, right? And one that was very iconic for me that a young person shared online that really got me thinking was, was an image of a, of a young black, black boy giving a water bottle to a police officer. And somebody tweeted at Pepsi, was like, we, we tried this at Baltimore and it didn't work. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, when, in hindsight as to what's happening today and the re relevance of, of, of the artwork that we, that we saw, the production, <coughs> is the fact that we just, it's, it's getting young people, or at least ho hopefully young people, to think of how they can use their resources and not rely so much on, on, on resources such as you know, government support for funding. Because um, we're, we're still gonna produce work, right? Regardless, our, at least artists, we're gonna continue producing this work. I know I am, in terms of whether or not I get the support of, of our president. So I guess I have a question in response to something you just said, Edgar. Um, as we sort of think about multiculturalism being a trend almost, um, or something that's, that's popular, it's like cool to be into multiculturalism, um, is that something that furthers othering or is it moving us towards belonging? I think we need to step back and analyze why we're doing it. And I think I'm always, I try not to be like the stereotype, like angry brown person, right? And like be like, yeah, yeah I'll it's be hard. there, right? And it's hard. That's right. And I think we just need to step back and be like, why am I doing this? Am I doing it just because I want that like online? Am I doing this because, you know, everybody else expects me to do it? Like, are you doing it because you're like wanting to better yourself and wanting to really understand other people's experiences and just really you think it's the right thing to do? Um, and I'm always having to question myself and why I do what I do, right? Why do I work with young people? Why do I stretch myself so thin with like three plus jobs? And I think at the, at the end of the day, it's like just you need to step back and be like, yeah, I'm doing this because of this. Um, I'm not doing this because I want people to think I'm doing amazing things. And that's what I tell a lot of the young people I mentor here in the city is like, you know, don't brag about how amazing you are, just do it. Just do it, and if, if it lines up and people find out you do stuff, great. But you shouldn't be doing stuff so you can get recognition and you can get grants, right? And I see that a lot with nonprofits who are being multicultural or doing cultural programs. So it's like, you're just doing it just to get a picture of a little brown kid so you can get funding. Like, stop doing this. Do it because you genuinely want people of color in your space. So it's important for us to remember that much of what we're talking about is a cyclical process of history, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we started utilizing the whole concept of multiculturalism in the 80s when I was a teenager. Um, and what we ended up with was a significant backlash known as, oh, that's just PC language. So there really wasn't the shifts and changes that people were looking for. So I think we're now in another iteration of that very thing where now that we've got this 
large population from a Latinx community, right? That's even making the country even more brown. We, we need to have those conversations again. So it can't stop at just dealing with the um, fact of having these individuals present, it has to be a greater and deeper conversation than what I think we've been talking about. At least here in Baltimore, we gotta realize that this conversation isn't new to other parts of the country. Like right. Texas right. was dealing with the opposite, with white people coming in, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, this is, yeah. So we, we need to realize that the fact that we, we, could, we could look at what other, uh, what things, people have been doing historically in other places um, and use that as a model to like avoid mistakes from reoccurring. You're listening to the latest installment of our series, World of the Play, we do in collaboration with Everyman Theater. On the way to break, I want to remind you, Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting over testing to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. You're listening to the latest installment of our series, World of the Play, we do in collaboration with Everyman Theater. Well, to go go to your question about um, does multiculturalism lead to othering? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think I just, I sort of ask myself, especially as someone who is... um, the recipient of a lot of interests of largely white folks in the city who who want to come out and support our Latino immigrant community um, is this trendiness of multiculturalism furthering othering or is it contributing to a sense of belonging? Well, I, I think the problem is that it's a, that we're looking at it as a trend. You, you know, I think that's the first step. Um, people do trends because because it's popular, right? You, you know, um, but. If if multiculturalism is really the goal that we're as a country are really trying to get to, then I think it's really having a conversation with yourself about well, what does that look like? What does that mean to share and occupy a space with someone who is different than you? You know, and and how does and and I think people's fear of it is that they feel like someone different sharing the same space takes away from me, and, and it diminishes me. Um, and, and getting over that fear, you know. Um, but this is work. It takes work to do all of that and, and to have that personal inner conversation. And we, we have to collectively, I guess, answer the question, is, is that our goal? Can that be our goal? You know, this play. You know, it, it, can can this be our goal that we live together and coexist? Yeah, we have we have to be okay with being uncomfortable. And we're not. <laughs> and we're not. I'm gonna um, ask one last question, and then I'd like to open up to the audience to see if you've got general comments or questions of our panelists. Um, talk to me, especially based on the type of work that you all do. What are the ways that you each see yourself addressing the concept of belonging in your work or community? For for me, I work a lot with. Uh, high school age students or at least young people in the, um, here in the city and out right outside DC and, and Lindley Park and getting this idea of the fact that we are a multi-spectrum of Lat- Lat- Latinx people. Um, we can be uh, white presenting, we can be black presenting, we can be indigenous presenting, um, but we are all one of the same. Um, and, and really building a bridge between the existing black community and our, uh, in, the, in our cities with our new incoming immigrant communities and kind of building that and using art as a platform to really engage in conversations. And I don't think I, I, I don't have a solution, right, to it, but at least I can start a conversation. Much, You're doing your part. Much, much like the play, at yeah. least starting a conversation. Right, right. Um, I think as a person of privilege, something I see myself being able to do Um, to contribute to a sense of belonging for those who have been othered is really creating access. And that's sort of where the vision for my OSI fellowship came from. Uh, When I was doing my master's thesis, 
which was related to the interactions with, of our Latino immigrant community with the food system in southeast Baltimore. One thing I noted after talking to several policymakers was that we have this disengagement um, of many of our Latino immigrant community members with existing programs. Um, an example is a program uh, through the health department called Healthy Corner Stores. Uh, but everything was available in English. Um, and so a lot of our Latino immigrant corner store owners couldn't access the program and didn't know about it. So as a person of uh, privilege who also happens to have some Spanish skills, I think I've been able to, to start building a bridge there to allow others to access existing resources. And I think just finding ways to create that access is um, an initial way of perhaps creating that bridge to greater belonging. I wanted to add one thing, because I'm noticing that I'm switching between this and you, and you are as well, the X at the end of la Latino. Um, that is uh, us reclaiming, at least us meaning people of indigenous and European descent and African descent, reclaiming our, our, our identity. Um, Spanish historically has masculine and female kind of connections to it, right? Like a door is, fe is female in Spanish, right, la puerta. Um, so the X comes in essence to like be very inclusive. So Latinx is something that we're pushing at least, uh, at least the young people uh, who are Latino uh, to be used a little bit more. Uh, and also to reclaiming of our indigenous connection. X is used a lot with the Mexica people from Mexico, right? Um, so it's kind of a, a little bit, a little side note that I wanted to add that we were kind of missing. That's why we keep saying Latinx. It's to be all inclusive in terms of gender and the entire spectrum and also a reclaiming of our language because we originally did not speak Spanish. Um, the work that we do uh, with Afro House, uh, if you boil it down to one statement, we tell new stories. Um, and we we are we make images. We we whether the images are film or or they're they're performance theater based. Uh, but I grew the way I grew up. I feel like it took me a long time to reprogram the idea in my head that as an African American or as a black to use that term a black person that we weren't really a part of the human experience. Um, and we go to school, we, we are taught that our history begins with slavery. Everything that was great and invented, it was invented by white people, except for a few things, you know, that we learned in February. Um, you know, we have our four greats, but outside of that, and so the work that we do is, is about telling new stories and, and, and reshaping image um, to include and write a better human story that is inclusive, that, that, that does try to get at the heart of what it really is to be human being um, and, and how we all are part of that, that equation. You know, it has, it has nothing to do with our color. And everything to do with our differences, though. Right? Um, and that's, that's what we do. That's what, how. Yeah, um, it's well said, because I, I think, again, if we can just have the human experience instead of uh, looking for ways to create those boxes um, to differentiate ourselves from one another, that some of what you all are looking for or envision in your own work could actually be accomplished. But we're so tied to those boxes and boundaries um, that we can't see past what could be the opportunity. I'd like to open it up and see if there's someone who'd like to offer general comments about the production today, or if you have a question for the panel, please. Just a question that really hasn't been addressed, and that's the issue of time and education. You know, this play went from 1938 to the mid-90s, over 60 years, and ended 20 years ago from now. And we're talking about our experiences today of how we evaluate those experiences there. And i just wondering in terms of did we learn anything from 1938 to 1995 up to 2017? And the, and 
the issue of, of time, education, getting rid of ignorance regarding all the issues that you're talking about. I'm not sure we have in a lot of ways, but interested in your, your thoughts. That might be the response, <laughs> that you guys are so quiet. Yeah, I think um, we, got, we have to ask ourselves, why are we still having this conversation since 2017? Shouldn't, be, we, shouldn't we be worrying more about the fact that bees are going out of extinction, right? Or they're going into extinction, basically, right? Why are we still having conversations about humanizing humans? And I think that's something that um, has been sometimes difficult for me to communicate to folks who are interested with, in allying themselves with CASA's work at present because it, um, it might be a struggle that has sort of come to the forefront and is on the front page of every newspaper, but um, the experience of the immigrant Ameri in America is not something that's new. And I struggle to communicate that participation in CASA's work is, is not going to necessarily result in this kumbaya moment, but you're certainly welcome to participate in the struggle as it exists and will continue to exist. And I do think there's hope in that participation. Whether or not we've made measurable progress is, is a very difficult question to answer. You know, I guess the thing that comes to my mind is a question, you know. Um, how do the, how do we, uh, as a country, profit off of the fact that things are the way they are? You know, um, all the systems in place that make up America, you know, all the systems, you know, justice system, everything, you know, as long as it's profitable, as long as that's how we stay together as a system, that, that we depend on, on, on the racism, and we depend on the otherness, you know. Uh, the, the fact that, that she went across the border to, to, to find, uh, uh, you know, help, that's a system in place, that's a, you know, that, what happens if she doesn't look at them, uh, if she doesn't look at the people over there as them? And, and what happens is then, then that business is gone, you know? Uh, so uh, to answer your question, why is it the same from 19, where did it start? 30, 38 to, that's where the money is, right? That's how we keep this current system going, I, I, I guess. I, I thought we could end this by talking a little bit about the soap. How do you feel that that entered on both streams, on this side and on this side? Can you talk a little bit about that? And you might need to remind us a little bit about the soap. These folks, do you guys remember anything about the soap, the I reference? Really, you mean the, the rock or the soap? The shower soap. The shower scene. And then what was the soap over here, though? Oh, yeah, yeah, she showered with Arturo. Um, uh, for me, I keep going to this idea of romanticizing the Latino experience, the Latinx experience, right? Both of them deal with a, a male who happens to be nude in the shower, right? And this idea of like just romanticizing or fetishizing in essence. Um, I don't know, at least that's, that's what I saw as, as, a, as a critique on, on the symbolism behind the, the bar of soap. I'm curious to hear what you thought of it. I thought of that, but I also thought of, of cleansing, of making things better, more pure, that soap often tells us in commercials that, you know. Was, was the soap white? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think it was, it was like a, a glycerin soap. That's what it looked like from here. But I think that's a really good point, because I think what Edgar is pointing to is perhaps something that, that I think we can all acknowledge was going on a little bit, um, was sort of the cleansing of the experience of otherness. And I think that's what we do when, when we commodify otherness. We sort of, uh, it, it makes us feel better because we no longer have to deal with the suffering aspect of it or um, the oppression. It's just that we, we clean up otherness into this vision that's palatable to us, whether it's a Pepsi commercial or a product that we're buying from a food truck. Um, 
or, or anything that really participates in that process of, of clean commodification. It's like this whole thing of like organic, right? And this whole idea of also like fair trade, right? People are still suffering, even, even if you buy organic or fair trade, right? But it's, a, it's packaged and sold to us. That way we feel a little bit better about buying and over-consuming. I want to thank Dr. Kimberly Moffat for guest hosting today for Word of the Play with Everyman Theater. Always great to have her in this seat. We're going to take a short break of The Rise of Charm City, which recently was recognized by the Baltimore Sun as the best radio broadcast in Baltimore. Stay tuned. Don't miss it. Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton, and our intern is Morgan Senior Michael Dixon. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org. Or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. I'll be back in the chair Monday. Looking forward to talking with you all. Take care. <laughs>